So today we're taking a little break from our Kingdom of God series, Chapter 4, which we should be doing Chapter 4C. Uh, and, and of course, Chapter 4, we're looking at uh, biblical imagery, case laws, and other things uh, that are that are ways of helping you interpret and get more out of Scripture than what you've usually been taught in our culture today. So uh, the truth of the matter was with the ARC conference, and uh, I ended up not getting back from Toledo till uh, about 10 o'clock last night, and then I was down here fixing some things at the church till midnight with a couple guys. And uh, uh, at 7 o'clock this morning, I was having so many computer troubles, I just said I, I don't have the whatever it takes to press through this and get get uh, that message done. I needed more time to study it. So I, I decided uh, to uh, review a message we did two years ago, which, uh, you know, Grace Christian Fellowship is based on grace. And I actually kind of want to start by reading two verses, uh, three verses, but only two of them are at the top of your page. So turn with me to Second Peter. Uh, so one of the themes of the conference, uh, uh, the ARC, uh, was leadership development. And one of the advantages of having Ned as your friend is Ned was here Sunday afternoon and, and Sunday evening, stayed over till Monday. And um, so I got to hear uh, everything he was going to teach at the conference ahead of time. And then uh, Ned has this way of doing this thing where on Thursdays all the senior pastors meet and then he teaches everything there that he's going to teach at the conference. So I actually didn't hear him teach it again the third time on Friday, but I'm pretty sure it'll be when I get to listen to the podcast and so forth, it'll be the same. Uh, and so here was, a, here was a theme that Ned had that I thought was uh, uh, in line with these verses in, in Peter, and that is Second Peter. Now, First uh, and Second Peter are both written toward the end of Peter's life. And part of Ned's theme was uh, seven stages of leadership that leaders go through. And the last stage being something like departure. Uh, Jesus, in the John 14, 15, and 16, uh, is, says, I'm about to accomplish my exodus. Is, uh, the, the Greek word is actually for the word for using the Septuagint for exodus, my departure. And so he teaches them all the most important things about the Holy Spirit and about the, his ongoing ministry, how he's not going to leave them an orphan, how he's going to come to them, but he's going to come to them by the person and the ministry and the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter, in First and Second Peter, he writes these toward the end of his life, and especially Second Peter, he's basically saying, this is it for me, guys. The Lord's made it clear I'm going to die soon. Uh, he actually perished in the persecutions, first great wave of Nero's persecutions along with Paul. And so uh, he's basically saying, gee, what do I want to leave behind in, uh, after I die? Because uh, if, uh, if you know, uh, you, uh, many of us have had grandmothers, mothers, brothers, sisters that have passed away. And if they've had a terminal illness where they have some time, uh, a lot of times they'll get their, not only get their economic affairs in order, but they'll say some final things to you to kind of say, hey, I love you, whatever. You know, if there's need for reconciliation, uh, they, they're going to, you know, they're, you, you, don't, you don't screw around. You, you get the most important things said. And uh, so here's, here's what Peter says. Turn to verse 12 of Second Peter chapter 1. He says, therefore, I shall always be, sorry. I shall always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established sorry, in the truth which is present with you. And I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, uh, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. Now, uh, turn over to chapter 3. Um, verse 1, he says, This now, beloved, is the second letter I'm writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind 
by way of reminder uh, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand. Remember. Now, one of the greatest uh, problems in modern Christianity is we kind of always want to hear something new. And um, uh, I remember Jason Hale made a wonderful comment, in, in my defense once, when uh, someone was saying, gee, Greg uh, encourages us from different perspectives to get in the Word like every week. And he ought, there's no message that he doesn't say, you should read your Bible, and uh, you should have spiritual disciplines, and you should spend time with the Lord, and you should read your Bible. And uh, so they were kind of complaining that I always do that every time. And Jason says, well, he'll probably stop saying it when we don't need to hear it anymore, when we're all doing it. So, um, you know, uh, what Peter is saying is, I'm not going to tell you something new. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just teach the same old things because that's really the essence of, of what we need to hear. Uh, the Bible is full of... You know, I, I, I quizzed the kids downstairs, and then I quizzed, uh, frankly, a group, the, the theology class. Nobody got this, for, but um, what were the children of Israel supposed to do when they were in the middle of the Jordan? Now, of course, some of you, I quizzed in the last week or two, so you know the answer now, right? Pick up stones. What And what were they supposed to do with them? Build a memorial, in other words, make a pile of those stones so that they, when they say, what's this pile of stones, they can say, all those stones came out of the Jordan when, the, when, the, when God uh, dried up the Jordan and caused us to be able to walk through on dry land when he parted the Jordan. All through the Bible, do this in remembrance of me. So that's just a little to say, uh, this Grace Upon Grace series I actually did in 2013, but when you can just consider what God's done in our midst since then, I remember when I first started having Bible studies with uh, Terry Pellegrino, who is usually here at 930, um, I encouraged Terry to, to listen to this series. So probably uh, half of the people in our church had not started coming yet when we did this, and you actually haven't heard it. And I've quizzed a number of people. I don't think anyone has uh, some of the major points of this memorized. So uh, just start by defending, uh, that's why I'm reteaching it, to be honest. Secondly, the series was based on John 1, 16, 17, which is listed at the top of the page. So listen, listen to this verse. For of his fullness, he's talking about Christ. Uh, just so you know, John chapter 1, John the beloved, John who leaned on the Lord's breast at the Last Supper, John, who uh, is the last of the apostles to leave this earth. Uh, John, who was is sometimes called John the Revelator because of the amazing vision of Christ, the risen Christ, the reigning the uh, Christ, the Lord that he received. John uh, wrote his gospel using what we've been talking about, uh, word pictures to the max. And just John chapter 1 has 21 word pictures of Jesus in the first chapter. Okay, so uh, if you want a fun exercise, read John chapter 1 and see if you can find 21 word pictures. Kind of like uh, you ever go to the dentist office when you're a kid and you, that, that children's magazine uh, highlights for children, they have the hidden pictures. That was always my favorite uh, my favorite thing as a kid was uh, these, they had this little magazine in the dentist's office called Children's Highlights, and it had a feature called Hidden Pictures, and you, you had to find all the little hidden pictures in the picture. So, for John 1, 16 and 17, for of Christ's fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Now, Grace upon grace is the New American Standard, English Standard, probably the two best English translations on the market's uh, translation, right? Uh, it's also the complete Jewish Bible's way of translating it. Uh, the irony of it all is uh, one of the most reliable Bibles, usually um, uh, the Young's Literal Translation gets it wrong and says grace instead of grace. Um, the New Living Translation and the and the Mounts Translation get it uh, pretty good when they say one gracious gift or blessing after another. Uh, King James does pretty well. New King James, uh, 
I forget what, Geneva Bible, grace for grace. Because what uh, modern people have come to, to misunderstand this verse by saying, thinking that John is juxtaposing the law against grace, but he's not. He's saying grace and grace, grace upon grace. Um, it'd be like, uh, you know, when the, the women have babies, they'll have a baby shower and Sometimes because of church and relatives and so forth, they might get two baby showers and, uh, or, and uh, then maybe people will buy them gifts the week the baby's born or whatever. And, uh, and sometimes they'll get gifts upon gifts. Uh, you, you, you always want to get that kind of thing going for your wedding and so forth. Uh, some kids like to get that kind of thing going for their birthday if they can. But uh, <laughs> um, what, it, what is, John is actually saying is, is that God chose the children of Israel by grace. Exodus 19 is all about how I chose you, I took you out of slavery, I bore you upon eagles' wings, I brought 10 uh, plagues against Pharaoh, and I delivered you by a mighty hand so that you could be my people and I could meet with you in the wilderness and make covenant with you. And this was all, had nothing to do with anything that God could find in Israel that would be worth saving them. In other words, he didn't save them because they were more in number than other nations. There wasn't some quality of their heart that was more cleanly than other nations. They were the same kind of sinner as every other nation. He just chose them by his grace. And so uh, you're standing here today to whatever degree God has started to work in your life, by his choosing. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. You did not choose me, John 15, 16, but I chose you. The Bible says there's none who seeks for God, no, not one. One of the modern heresies is sometimes called Arminianism. Uh, it, it was an ancient heresy called Pelagianism, but it's the idea that you have some merit in yourself that allowed you to make the right choices, and you chose God, but you didn't. Uh, one of the great classic theology books of all time was Martin Luther's The Bondage of the Will. Actually, you were created in the image of God. You therefore knew deep down in your spirit there was a God. Your conscience knew his law, and you were running from all that. And there was none who seeks for God, no, not one. And he came knocking on your door and knocking on your door and knocking on your door. In whatever circumstances he used, people sharing the gospel, your life falling apart, whatever he did, he finally got you backed into a corner and his foot on your neck. And he said, I love you. <laughs> I want you to, to repent. I want to make covenant with you. I want to be your gracious father. You got to confess your sins and turn around and and uh, receive a new life and a new heart. You got to say uncle. <laughs> and so then we stood up the next week at church and said, last night I found the Lord. <laughs> That's not this nonsense. He found you. That's called grace. You know what is amazing about that? Um, if you can get covenant going as the basis of, of your relationship with God, our Father, who art in heaven, if you can get that in the basis of your relationships with one another, uh, it becomes, if you really understand it, it becomes the most secure place to live life out of. Guess what? God demonstrated his own love to you in that while you were yet sinners, but another verse, a couple of verses later says, while we were enemies, he died for us. You know, uh, we the Bible's picture of us is that if we were enemies of the cross. We were enemies of Christ. We were in the crowd that said, crucify him. We were the person that nailed his hands to the cross. We hoped against hope that this God thing wasn't real. We ran from it as much as we could. And he still broke through to open our eyes and change our mind so that we freely chose by the work of his grace, uh, he enabled us to choose him rightly. He liberated us. 
So uh, grace upon grace is basically saying that God's creation of Adam and the Adamic covenant was grace, although Adam fell from it. God's choosing of Abraham was grace. God's choosing of Israel and giving them the law was grace. And grace that has been coming and coming and coming was fully realized in Jesus Christ. That's what this verse means. All the grace, it's kind of like, you know, like when you're doing your taxes and you pay a certain amount and the IRS comes and shakes your, like those cartoons where they turn the guy upside down and shake him till the coins all come out. It's like, is there any more in there? And it's like, Jesus, God emptied heaven of grace in the person of Jesus Christ. All the grace that that's in the entire universe is in Jesus Christ, and he has been given to us. All right, so now, Hebrews 4, I'm going to skip. I wanted to read three verses, but Hebrews 4, you've heard, hopefully you've heard me preach on that one 50 times about how to, to draw near to the throne of God to acquire grace. Um, so the first thing I want to do today is I'm actually going to try to review chapter one and chapter two of this series we did and hope you'll uh, get the outlines. We don't have a format yet on the computer where the outlines are on the computer. So you have to email me and I'll send you the outline if you want. Um, soon you will have it set up where Deanna Brown and Stephen also have the outlines and, and we're going to have them back in this back rack. Uh, but You'll get more out of it if you get the outlines, but I encourage they are on the podcast and you can listen to them. So the first thing I want to quickly review, uh, chapter one is kind of the easier stuff, so I want to review that first real quick. I want to define grace. You see, uh, under Roman numeral three, you'll see four things about grace. In our culture today, whether you're Catholic or Protestant, number A will be the definition of grace that you've heard. And as I always say, that's, a, that's true, but it's just partially true. If I say, Leah Gray is a wonderful Christian lady who has a baby named Daniel, that is true, but there's a lot more you might want to know about Leah Gray, especially John wants, Gray wants to know more about Leah Gray than that. <laughs> you know, uh, there's, it's true, but it's not complete. So God, you know, what we said, God's choosing you, his undeserved favor where there's really not any basis for why you were granted repentance, why you were granted uh, eternal life. The kindness of God grants repentance, Romans 2, 4. Uh, Acts eleven eighteen. so God has granted to the Gentiles the, the, the repentance that leads to life. Why God gave you that has nothing to do with any good quality in you. And when you can fully get that in your heart of hearts, You'll be delivered from all pride. And secondly, grace is divine empowerment. And therefore, apart from the active working of his grace at every second and every minute, nothing you that comes out of you will be anything but unrighteousness. There is no good thing, Romans 7, that dwells in us in and of ourselves. Now, as we're, we're going to get into uh, uh, different approaches to grace, the, the wrong ones and the one right one, there's, there's a five approaches to grace that people take. Only one of them is the biblical approach, grace upon grace. But if you take the wrong approach, what you'll have, you'll often have what men think are good works, but good works initiated by man for man's purposes, if you want to look good before other men, or even you want to earn the favor of God in and of your of, by your good works or whatever, those are what the Bible calls dead works. And the very first foundation of the Christian life that the writer of Hebrews lists in Hebrews 6.1, when he lists the six foundations of the Christian life, the first one is, does anyone know? Repentance from dead works. Thank you, John. Repentance, which mentanoia means to change your mind and to turn around, to go away from self-centeredness and to, and to seek toward God, uh, that repentance from dead works is the first foundation of the Christian life. We'll cover more about that as we go here. But grace uh, transforms you to do God's will 
because in the Christian ethical system, you study if you study all the other religions of the world, if you study especially humanistic ethics, you'll you'll find this. Every other system of the world it falls short of of the biblical view. The biblical view says you have to have the right action at the right time for the right reasons to be righteous. And that can only come out of the life of God throwing through you. You can only do that when you're living actively at that second in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I live in this body, I live by faith, by trusting to, relying on, clinging to, obeying and following the Jesus Christ who loved me and delivered himself up for me. When you are living there this moment, you can have the right motives for the right actions in the right, uh, uh, in the right circumstances. In other systems, like in communism, Lenin, not John Lenin, who we were uh, joking about earlier, uh, he basically said, if we have to kill millions of people, of course, all the totalitarian humanistic religions, fascism, Nazism, Pope Hot, all these guys uh, believe this. Uh, it, they, it was kind of a taking, starting with the Machiavelli's, the prince, and building upon his ideas. But they believe that uh, in, if we have to kill millions of people to bring about a more just society, that's a price worth paying. And uh, although Machiavelli never uh, said this, uh, some people sum up his ideas as saying the end justifies the means. Like, it's okay that I stole because I gave it to the poor. Robin Hood theology, you know. Um, but but the, the ends do not never justify the means. Now, so... Grace is God's empowerment, and grace comes through the person of Jesus Christ. I think that's even point, yeah, three, is grace is a covenant relationship. Christ is the realization of all grace, and to grow in grace, uh, you have to walk in the promise of the new covenant given in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. They shall all know me to the, uh, from the least to the greatest the priesthood of all believers. You have to be empowered by our high priest directly himself through the word of God, through the spirit of God, and through the Jesus that lives in his church. We've been studying, uh, doing this gift series on Thursdays at Wright State, and we've been, uh, we're on what's called the, the service gifts. Jesus, when he ascended, gave gifts to men apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, helps, and administrations. There are deposits of Jesus that live that are in the person next to you. And to the degree that you receive those rightly, to the, that degree you're receiving Jesus. To the degree you reject the, the how Jesus is coming to you through Logan Carr, to that degree you've reject, you're rejecting Jesus himself. Now, that doesn't mean since we're fallen that everything that comes out of every person is, is, is uh, an expression of the deposit of Christ. However, uh, I always say that discipleship uh, is not just direct discipleship to Jesus, nor is it just discipling by an older person in Christ. The community of believers, we disciple one another. Uh, Ned Berube again was here last Sunday, and I actually uh, someone organized that I forgot he was coming until 20 minutes before he got here. And uh, so... Uh, I said, well, he just likes to see what we're doing. So I had him sit in on the uh, theology classes uh, study session. And, uh, you know, I this is kind of a pat on the back. At the same time, it, it's maybe a little crying over the state of the church. But he said, I don't know any church where six or seven young people would get together just to study theology uh, for the fun of it on a Sunday afternoon. And I thought, Really? What else would you want to do? <laughs> you know, like, are you, I'm like, are you kidding me? And he said, no, I don't think so. And I said, I hope, I hope you're wrong. <laughs> and uh, he said, I don't think I'm wrong. And I said, oh boy. Uh, but you know, uh, you know what? What are these six or seven people doing? They're discipling each other in the Word of God. In right. Uh, so. 
you know, it's not just uh, pastors, shepherds, teachers. It, we all disciple one another, uh, even by just the example of our life, sometimes without any words, just by how we live. So grace is relational. And finally, grace is something you grow in. Grace is grace upon grace. So those are some definitions of grace. The, the, the part that's really missing a lot is that, well, the relational part's missing a lot. It's not just the, the word in some abstract sense or the spirit in some abstract sense, but it's as you tangibly, concretely in, increase the power and the frequency uh, of your encounters with the, with the Holy Spirit. The Bible says those who are led by the Holy Spirit are the sons and daughters of God. The Bible says through the Holy Spirit, uh, we cry out, Abba, Father. We, the, Father. God the Father becomes Daddy through the intimacy of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jutzen Oliveris' brother was there yesterday, and uh, I was joking with some some guys about, uh, if any of you know who Jutzen Oliveris, he's kind of a like a Matt Redman in, in the country of Brazil. He's, you know, kind of nationally famous for his worship leading and so forth. And he led the, um, he happens to be Tom Pavley's son-in-law, but he led worship years ago at the uh, ARC conference about eight years ago. And uh, because of, uh, you know, Portuguese is his primary language. He kept saying when he's leading the worship, I want you to have intimacy with God. I want you to have intimacy. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and the, and the, then it, then it be, you know, we, we need to draw near to God and have intimacy with God. And I'm like, what is it? How, how can I get intimacy? <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, the Holy Spirit gives you intimacy with God. Um, it's It's relational. You, one of the things that came out of the Holy Spirit movement of the 60s and the 70s was the uh, people starting to experiment with Christian community in various ways and saying, let's get back to the New Testament kind of community. Now, in a lot of ways, the megachurch thing kind of crushed that in the 80s, but God still has that on his agenda. So... All right, let's move on to uh, five approaches to grace. Hopefully I can get these through in 18 minutes. Um, these are approaches people take. This first one is probably the most common. This is actually common among world religions. It's common among humanist unbelievers. And it's actually, unfortunately, very common among churchgoers. It's actually why... Uh, some of you know Victor Tenbrink, his father, Eugene Tenbrink, one time uh, said to me when he was visiting us here in Dayton, um, he was a missionary to India and a uh, really cool guy. And he said, uh, you know, you're supposed to go to church to seek God, but most people actually go to church to avoid God. It was one of those, like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and uh, I had to think about it a while. I'm not, you know, I'm sort of a slow learner sometimes. And, uh, you know, I kind of be basically eventually began to realize that our sinful heart, um, the truth of the matter is, is that there, there's none who seeks for God. In our, in our flesh, even as God starts to draw us, we have various ways that we kind of try to keep from going all the way. <laughs> various ways we try to water him down. Various ways we try to avoid full encounter with him. And this is what this is what the Jews were doing. This is what Jesus came to do because grace had been extended them. Uh, grace was given to Moses. Grace was given to Adam. Grace was given to Abraham, to Moses, to all the Israelites. But they kept going back to this first one instead of receiving God and walking with God by grace. And this is ultimately what caused them to miss the whole will of God and to be judged and why God said, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you and give it to a nation that produces the fruit because you can produce no fruit on this basis. And that basis is under Roman numeral 5a there on your worksheet, works plus nothing. In other words, if I go to church enough, and everyone who does this, by the way, has their own little priority of what righteousness is, if I'm righteous enough in and of myself, I'll have God's favor as the reward. 
This is why many forms of Christianity, if you ask people, you always know they have this view. If you say, do you uh, know that you'll go be with the Lord if you were to pass away? If they say, I hope so, it's because they have this view of righteousness. Because if you don't know so, then you're not, then you don't know the Lord. If you don't know that you're going to be with the Lord and why you're with the Lord, because you're already with the Lord and you're already walking in eternal life today, eternal life is that they might know me, Jesus Christ, and the Father whom he sent him, John 17, 3. So uh, Paul says this about Israel and their approach to God. Listen to this. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. I prayed this prayer about a a friend of mine who died outside of Christ in 1981, my best friend growing up. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of, not knowing about, God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end, and the Greek word there is telos, which we get teleology from. He's the goal. When uh, for righteousness to everyone who believes. So when you believe in Christ, you go from wherever you were on the racetrack to breaking the tape at the finish line, you're done. When he said, it is finished, when you receive Christ, you receive that into your heart. All atonement has been made for sin. All death has been defeated. Everything that has to do with, with man's fall is, was finished in Christ. And when you receive Christ, you are transported. Beam me up, Scotty. Uh, like Philip, you know, on the road uh, where he was transformed from Samaria to Gaza. You're just, you're just moved to the Father's right hand in heavenly places, seated with Christ. That's where you're seated. Some of you think Anvesh is seated in the sixth row with Sidney and Salam. And on one level, that's true. But they're also seated at the Father's right hand in heavenly places. Awesome, huh? They have better air conditioning. Uh, (laughs) They're reigning with Christ now. And by the Holy Spirit, God progressively makes that real to you so that you act because you actually are experiencing that whether you know it or not. Heaven is not like, you know, we think of heaven in terms of changing geography, geography places, but that's not true. Where two or three are gathered in my name, the kingdom of heaven, the temple of God's glory, his sanctuary is dwelling among men. In, in those, in the covenant redeemed believers of God. So Christ is the goal of the law. Now, when to get that goal, you must cease and desist all efforts to establish it yourself. You must go and come before God naked, uh, which is a symbolic universal symbol of shame, with all our guilt, all our shame, we need to stop self-correcting. We need to stop self-help class, you know, books. And, you know, what they call the modern Christianity, they call the moralizing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do better, and, and I need a little bit of help from Christ. I want him to come into my life and see it, sit in the back seat. And none of that. You just lay down your whole life and you receive his life, like we taught on Easter Sunday in the eight exchanges uh, at Easter. You give your life in exchange for his life, and you're at the finish line. Not knowing about God's righteousness, unfortunately, is the state of many churchgoers today. Uh, We think we've got to add to it. And um, just trying to turn to a verse real quick here. All right, so um, 
1 Timothy 3.15 says that in case I'm delayed, Paul says, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I'm delayed, uh, it was actually the time of his departure, but he didn't know, know it yet. Um, in case I'm delayed, um, where was I? I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Now, this is a hard thing to swallow sometimes, but the church is supposed to be the pillar and support of the truth. And if we get it wrong on this five views of grace, the church actually becomes the pillar and support of deception. If you've got to, you know, do more bake sales, pray more rosaries, uh, give more to United Way, uh, help more little ladies across the street. If you have to volunteer at Kids Rock to, to establish righteousness before God, if you have to get in the word, you know, what I try to be very careful of is, you know what, you don't have to read the word to be righteous before God this week. You have to receive his righteousness as a free gift, and anyone who receives that will be, will be so over we love because he first loved us the more you get the love of god going the more you want to love him back and sometimes that love will be helping a whiz kids and sometimes it'll be worshiping and sometimes it'll be reading his bible because who doesn't read you know like who would have a relationship i have a slight relationship with john gray's mother and uh she wrote me a nice little thank you note that i found when i got home last night at uh at midnight. And I didn't go like, oh, I'm so tired. I'll read this tomorrow. I said, oh, a nice note from John Gray's mother. I'll read it right now. <laughs> right? So it's not that you like have to read. I didn't like, oh, I have to read this or I'll offend John Gray's mother and she won't like me anymore. <laughs> you know, no, I wanted to hear what she had to say. Right? You know, that's reading the word, the mouth speaks out of the abundance that fills the heart. How many people ha have ever had a courting or dating relationship where you talk too much on the phone? <laughs> too much, uh, what, what did you guys used to do? Skype. Yeah, you Skype and you talk on the phone and you pass notes in class if you're still in high school <laughs> or whatever. Uh, uh, you know, you don't go like, you know, um, I, I told you I loved you when we talked uh, a couple nights ago. Call me back in six weeks <laughs> that's kind of like what we do with god because we don't get established in the in grace it, if you get established in grace i'll be able to quit t saying we should read our bibles because <laughs> you want to read your bible because the mouth speaks out of the abundance that fills the heart and you'll get so motivated to seek out god I used to hide a Bible in, in my school books. <laughs> when I was in college, I get a little Bible in a big school book so I could read the Bible during the professor's lecture. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> well, maybe. It depends on what he's talking about. But uh, all right, I better move on. Um, second thing is works plus grace leads to favor. So that's where we kind of have it all mixed up in a convoluted way in our mind. This A lot of Christians live here. Uh, I've got to do this and this and this so that I'll be acceptable to God. But I do know he died for my sins and, and so forth. And, I, you know, that's in there somewhere. And somewhere it's, it's about free gift and, and forgiveness and so forth. But, but boy, you know, I got to wear my dress down to my ankle and I can't wear makeup. And, and it, what happens is everyone who has these kind of works philosophies builds their own little way of the, doing the works. And every denomination has their own little way of doing the works. But the, it's actually the same root philosophy. Now, sometimes this, this thing grows out of the wrong response to what we're going to look at in, in points uh, D below instead of E. Uh, and uh, and we'll, we'll see that in a minute. Like, um, so, but it's not the right response. So when, when, one of the things that people don't realize, I always say, don't jump out of the frying pan into the fire. 
Let me tell you, I'm an expert at having done that. When God has you in difficult places and stuff, there's when what most people do is there's actually kind of an end to a season coming along. Like you're you've had this job that has been the cross of Jesus Christ. You have a nasty boss, it's nasty hours, they disrespect you, whatever. And God's about to open up a better provision for you, but you leave badly. Or you jump in, you grab the wrong job before you before you wait on the right job. Just had a good good meeting with a good brother who is good at getting taking counsel, which is a skill in itself in our days, who has basically had a chance at a job, but he had this sense that, you know, I need a better job, but maybe this one isn't it. And he was right. And uh, it, that wasn't, a, it wasn't, you know, he's coming to an end of a season. God's going to give him a better job, but don't always jump at the first chance to get out of the skillet. Jump at the right one in the right time. And God will confirm that by his spirit and by leadership in your life and things like that. So uh, the one of the pro- problems with this uh, works plus grace thing is grace itself is actually what the Bible calls the scandal of the cross. Now, none of you know as much. I probably know more about most of you than other than husbands and wives or, or something. So the scandal of the cross is that I could pick on anyone. I'll pick on Nathan, because we all know that Nathan rivaled me in terms of notorious sinner. (laughs) Praise God. And the scandal of the cross is God made this guy righteous. And the, the scandal of the cross is God made you righteous. What the heck? Who does he think he is? God or something? He, 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 declares, he declares vagabonds righteous. And so the works, the, if you still have pride in, in self-righteousness and self-attempts and works as part of your heart, you just don't like it. Like, that's what the elder brother's problem was in John uh, or Luke 15. You know, like this prodigal son, you're having this, you're, you slayed the fattest calf and you're having a covenant celebration. You put the ring, the family signet ring on him and you put a robe of righteousness on him and you washed his feet from this journey through pig stuff that he was in and giving him new sandals and they're me singing and making merry. I don't want to even go in. Third way is grace plus works. You start by by growing by grace, but you have to grow by works. So you receive Jesus at this humble spot, and then then you start to work. That was the Galatian heresy. That's what why the book of Galatians. Now, if you don't know this, all of us have this in our heart. And any of us who had any exposure, you you may be very blessed if you were raised a complete pagan. But if you were raised in any kind of Christianity in our culture, then you have had this performance-based thing steeped on you and legalism steeped on you because man is made in the image of God and we are creatures of law and there's a philosophy that's sweeping both Catholicism and Protestantism called antinomianism. And because of that, we substitute our own law. And so you have this, I, all of us, struggle with this idea that I've got to perform to be accepted. And so it's a little bit like when you break the addiction cycle, if you ever study that, the, if you get rid of the underlying reasons why you started down the addiction path in the first place, that's not good enough because the addiction takes on a life of its own. And so, and it's the same way with, with this, like you receive Christ by grace And then three or four weeks later, you're back to performance approach to God. And part of the growth in sanctification is the growth in grace all your life. Now, I managed my time poorly, but uh, as I do sometimes or more often do, uh, Paul is, Paul, Paul, think about this. Paul commends every audience of every letter, and even the Corinthians. He gives the Corinthians these great lists of why he's sure the grace of God is working in him. He does none of that with the Galatians. 
he just jumps right into rebuking them. Because this is the most dangerous thing in Christianity, that you become a Pharisee. Every one of us knows that we got saved and somehow we became a Pharisee, right? Somehow we became performance-based and we had our best friend and they didn't do how they were supposed to do and we couldn't stay with them in a time of their own rebellion and their own sin. You know, part of grace is to walk through, walk with people sometimes for several years that have taken a wrong course and, and you know it and they don't want to hear it. And so you just stay with them. And I call it the you hope you're wrong syndrome. Uh, and even if you're not, you're going to avoid saying I told you so at the end. You know, one of my, I'm going to go over, John can get mad at me later. One of my saddest memories is that my best friend wanted to hear nothing about Jesus after I became a Christian. I told him and I told him and I told him and I kind of finally gave up telling him. So about six or seven years later, he was actually living as a roommate with one of our other friends and the other friend had a wife and two kids and he stole the guy's wife while living at his house. I was pissed. But so much so that I cut off the relationship until I got a phone call that he had just died in a car accident. And I never had a chance to come out of my pharisaicalness and say, you know what, what you're doing is disgusting, it's, it's hurtful, uh, it's an abomination, and I love you so much. I still, you're still my best friend. Which is what I should have said if I hadn't been, been embracing a works, a grace plus works uh, approach to life. Does everyone hear that? that? That's really important. Now, there's a bunch of scriptures that on the top half of the second page I don't have time for, but you would do well to read those scriptures and think about grace plus works because that is the battle you are in every day. And the more you can come to grace plus grace as your way of walking with God. Now, the fourth one I can do real quick, grace plus licentiousness. That is a very, 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 very prevailing idea today. Because we have grace, we're no longer under law. So what the hell? <laughs> let's just eat, drink, and be married. Let's, let's just, you know, you, you, there are thousands of addicts. There's this alcoholic guy that likes to come by our house and talk to Logan and I on the porch, and he's full of anger and bitterness, and he'll go, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and I feel like he's going to punch me. or <laughs> Like he's almost going to say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, GD, you know, or something. And uh, he'll tell me, did you see the blood red moon? Jesus is coming back. And I'm like, oh, Lord. And uh, he has no intention of ever submitting anything in his life, his attitudes, his motivations, his addictions, his habits. Uh, he has no intention of being involved in a church or, or whatever. Thousands of, of pe young people live there today. You know, oh, Jesus will forgive me, and I'm still going to be a Christian minister and so forth, but I have no intention of actually making Jesus my Lord. Thousands of churchgoers are not even converted. If you study the Puritans on conversion, or even the Arminians, like the Charles Finney on conversion, thousands of churchgoers who talk about Jesus, who talk about religion, have no intention of submitting their attitudes, their motivations, their goals, their priorities, or any other thing like that to Jesus. Now, lastly is grace upon grace, but that's where you grow by grace, you start by grace, you live by grace, you lean on grace. And I actually want to just quickly go over even a couple more minutes. Come on in, people. It doesn't bother me if you come in. Jason, just wave them in if you can. Whatever. Um, this is how to detect this in your life. This is really important. God gives you certain ways of seeing this in your heart. First, uh, if you condemn other people. Or if you condemn yourself. You know, if you're still struggling with what's called condemnation, it's because you still want to have pride before God. Think that through. I wish I could develop that. That would be a whole teaching in itself that would be worth hearing. 
you know, asterisk, star, highlighter, you know, text it to yourself, send it to your email. Think about if you have a struggle with condemnation, talk to some older Christians about the difference between conviction and condemnation. Should be very clear on that. And make sure that you do not walk in condemnation because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death and condemnation can only be experienced by someone who's still expecting better of themselves. It's based in self-righteousness. Likewise, the second thing is you'll be critical of others or harsh in judgment. If you find yourself uh, doing what I did to my friend, oh my God, that, you know, not only is he an alcoholic, and, but, you know, he doesn't want anything to do with Jesus, but he stole our, our other friend's wife and kids. What a jerk. I'm, you know, if you find yourself being harsh in judgment, then you're not, then you're not walking in grace. You're actually self-righteous. And that is the most wicked of all sins. It's the devil's sin. It's pride. If you have a hard time uh, decreasing your expectations and increasing your appreciation, that has to be a life journey for you. There's no way, as our culture continues to fragment and disintegrate, you know, the culture of divorce that started in the 70s, and now we're two generations into broken homes, divorces, kids growing up in, uh, in families like, you know, it, you're, everyone you're working with is going to be broken on levels that are going to go beyond your imagination. And you're going to find yourself saying, well, how can people be this broken? And the, 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 the patience to expect nothing except to love on them, serve them, teach them the gospel, and so forth, and to lower your expectations of, of, of their of return, so to speak, and increase your appreciation of what God's doing in their life. And finally, uh, if you're a people pleaser, we all have known people pleasers. And uh, if you're a people pleaser, that's, that's way, one of God's ways of telling you that you're not deep enough in just the acceptance that he's giving you in Christ. Uh, I wish I could have developed those last four more, but I'm, I'm eight minutes past my time. So let's be quick about bathroom breaks and getting back in here and all that.